If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So it's an interesting day shaping up in the nation's capital as MPs, and not all MPs, obviously, and that's what makes this situation so unique, is just how small this sitting of the House of Commons is going to be in terms of actual MPs in the House. Uh, But we've got kind of a bare minimum that we need here uh, to ensure that matters can be dealt with. And more specifically, the matter to be dealt with today are these emergency economic measures that the government needs to get passed through the House of Commons uh, so that this money can start flowing to the public. And then, of course, it's going to be on to the next measure. This really just has to be the beginning, which seems like a remarkable thing to say about an $80 billion economic package. Now, a few things have happened over the last 24 hours or so. We learned last night, late yesterday afternoon, that the government had included some pretty remarkable provisions in this legis- uh, legislation uh, that would have given the federal cabinet and the finance minister in particular some broad new powers uh, to spend money, even possibly raising or lowering taxes, without the need for a vote in the House of Commons, a power that would have existed, been in place until December of next year. Now, the government appears to have backed away from that. The prime minister did talk about today the need uh, for government to be able to move extremely quickly, that we need some flexibility and rapidity in uh, when it comes to to government response. And, And I think the opposition parties would agree, but this did seem like an overreach. Today, the House of Commons sat... Uh, The government House Speaker very quickly rose, though, to say that uh, the session was being suspended uh, as perhaps some more negotiations were taking place around this legislation. So joining us for the latest uh, on what's happening uh, in the nation's capital, where things stand, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, David Aiken. Uh, He's the chief political correspondent for Global News and is in the nation's capital. David, thank you for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Robin. And I'm reporting not from the House of Commons, but we're trying to be good social distancers, too. So um, I am literally reporting from my home office, watching all the various parliamentary feeds. And uh, I've never used text messages with so many MPs as I have today (laughs) or phone calls. In fact, uh, I was just speaking to the conservative MP, Scott Reid, who is sitting in his chair in the House of Commons. He became a bit of a central character today when this House suspended. Uh, Scott Reid was not among the list of Conservative MPs that the Conservative uh, House leadership had sort of approved to be in the House. And uh, this is important, and let me walk through this. So because nobody wanted all 330 MPs, the 38 MPs getting on planes, etc., to be in the House... All parties agreed to send just a limited number of MPs that essentially reflected the balance of power in the House. And the key balance Mm -hmm. of power is the Liberals would have more MPs than anybody else, but the combined opposition MPs would exceed the Liberal votes. So there was going to be 11 Conservatives. That was the rule. Scott Reid was not going to be one of them. Scott Reid is an Eastern Ontario MP. He's been an MP for a long time, going back, I think, to the late 90s. And he's a real stickler for... House rules for history of democracy, uh, for the respect and rights of MPs, 
you know, Scott's a fascinating guy to talk to. He was early in on the reform movement because he wanted more grassroots power, and he spent a career being a stickler for the rules. Well, he showed up against his party's uh, whip's instructions, and he said he was going to withhold unanimous consent, which is what is required under the current way the House is operating. He was going to withhold unanimous consent of this legislation, which included economic relief, but also included a whole bunch of other measures which would have uh, overridden parliamentary oversight, parliamentary accountability. Now, Scott, as I said, I just got off the phone with him about 10 minutes ago. He's feeling good now that his party's leadership, the Conservatives, they've been busy negotiating for the last uh, couple of uh, hours to with the government to say, listen, we showed up expecting just to vote on this multi-billion dollar relief package. Put some legislation before the House that's just on this multi-billion dollar relief package. We'll vote for it. But so long as the government wants to give the finance minister more powers to tax or give the health minister unlimited power to spend with no oversight from Parliament, the Conservatives are not ready to do that. They're ready to help the government with the relief package and be flexible. But uh, anyways, that's where we're at right now. We're not sure when the House is going to get back and ready to go. And uh, all parties want to move this forward. They've been negotiating for three hours, and they say sort of the maverick in this, Scott Reed, conservative from eastern Ontario, he's sitting by himself in his seat in the House waiting for something to happen. <laughs> That's interesting. He's not part of the negotiations then, but... No, he's not. And again, yeah. his, his, he's, I mean, the backstory to this is uh, Scott Reed got offside with Andrew Shear when Andrew Shear was leader a while ago and said some things about the way Shear was running the party and running his caucus that, you know, Shear didn't take kindly to, and the punishment for that was... Scott Reed has been removed from all his committee assignments. Remember, I mentioned Scott's been, been in the House for ages and ages and was a constant on the House's Procedure and House Affairs Committee, the rulemaking committee, and Shear removed him from that. So there's been a little bad blood between Scott Reed and Andrew Shear for quite a while, and that manifested itself today, and that Reed basically ignored what Shear's whip had told him to do, which is don't show up because it'll upset the, quote, balance of power we've all agreed on. And, you know, think of it's, – it's much like, you know, uh, the old Cold War in which if the U.S. buys a gun, the Russians got to buy two guns, U.S. has to buy three guns. If, if an MP disobeys their whip in this, you know, House of Commons with 30 MPs, then the liberals will say, well, if, if you guys can't control your caucus, we've got to put more MPs in. And then the NDP will say, well, then – no, 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 wait. We've got to put more MPs in. And you can see how it escalates. Yeah. And the idea for public health reasons, we don't want 338 MPs. We want – enough to get the work done and preserve, you know, the parliamentary balance of power, which is libs have a minority. Because don't forget, there's a lot of liberals within driving distance of the House of Commons between Montreal and Toronto. Montreal is two hours away. Toronto's five hours away. There's, you, could, you could get a ton of liberals here just like that. It's harder, obviously, to get conservatives from other parts of the country, from B.C., from Alberta, from Saskatchewan. You can't drive that in, in a day, certainly. Um, and you'd be interested to know, while I pointed out, Rob, there are two Albertans in the House of Commons. They were here in this part of the country doing some other work and had not returned to Alberta. And that's Garnet Janice from Edmonton, also Tim Upple from Edmonton. So Alberta has two uh, representatives in the current House of Commons uh, if and when we get to a debate and a vote on whatever legislation is coming down. Do we have any sense of how flexible the Liberals are on this point? I mean, the Prime Minister, you know, said today that, of course, they're, they're going to respect uh, parliamentary democracy, also talking about the, the need to be flexible, the need to be rapid in, in mm-hmm. government responding to all of this. So, so where, where are they at? Do we know? 
Flexible in the sense, you're right, that the government quickly withdrew one aspect of this bill that would have given the finance minister this power, the power to raise taxes, lower taxes, change taxes, um, and do so all without parliamentary oversight and do so till December 2021. Okay, that uh, that got withdrawn. But there's another section of the act that was going to the House was going to talk about, which um, it, it would have created a new law. And here's what that law said. It's pretty simple. The new law would have said the public health minister can declare a national public health concern. And when the public health minister makes that declaration, the finance minister can spend whatever he thinks is necessary to deal with that public health event. So a couple of things there. No parliamentary oversight to challenge the declaration of a public health emergency and no parliamentary oversight or accountability for the spending measures. Now, a lot of people might say, sounds pretty reasonable to give the government, you know, pretty uh, powers to spend whatever you need to to get rid of this COVID-19. Yes, that's what parliamentarians sort of thought about in 1988 when they rewrote the War Measures Act into what is called the Emergencies Act. And if the federal government, which has the only jurisdiction in the country that has not yet declared an emergency, remember, Alberta and every other province have declared an emergency. If the federal government declared an emergency, then in that, uh, among the powers they would get would be to spend whatever they need to spend on this emergency. But here's the caveat. The Emergencies Act says, first of all, Parliament must, within seven days, vote to affirm or revoke the emergency the government would have just declared. So presumably they would vote to affirm it. But the government can only do that spending and use its other powers for 90 days. And then at the end of the 90-day emergency period, the government could say, right, we still have an emergency. We're going to renew the emergency for 90 days. And you know what happens then? Right, Parliament must come back. And again, on a straight up or down vote, vote to affirm or reject the emergency again in 90 days. So you see in the Emergencies Act, the, the parliamentarians in 1988 said, it's, it's absolutely we've got to give the federal government the ability to move rapidly, spend what it needs to spend. But it is appropriate that Parliament have a check and balance, in this case, about every 90 days. Got to come back and tell us what you were doing, and then we get to vote whether or not we continue with it. The current legislation before the House that the Liberals proposed overnight, that in fact many parliamentarians have not even had a chance to read, would remove a lot of that parliamentary oversight and accountability. And that's what the Conservatives are certainly upset about. I can tell you New Democrats in the bloc are also pretty nervous about it. Not sure exactly you know, if they vote down this economic relief package, but the Conservatives don't want to vote for it until parliamentary oversight and accountability is part of whatever emergency package we're, we're going to put forward. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a delicate balance to try to keep everything right now as simple as possible, but also recognizing the need to make decisions in the future uh, with with some flexibility and, and being able to respond rapidly. So I'll be curious to see what comes of all of this. Uh, are we anticipating then that this is going to, to carry on into the evening here tonight? We, we, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, Rob, obviously, we've never been in this situation before. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be resolved too quickly because they say negotiations between the parties, as, as the, my last intelligence was still happening. And then once there is some sort of resolution or agreement, then I think I, I know this for a case for the conservatives. I'm assuming the same with the New Democrats. Uh, they want to have a conference call with the MPs who, you know, their caucus who are not here just to make sure is everybody on board with this. And then they'll be able to go through the process of having a debate in the House of Commons. And that was promised, a chance to put questions to the to the ministers. There won't be a question period, but there will be 
you know, some debate. The government will have to defend its position and the and the opposition will be doing what it's supposed to do in our system, which is improve the legislation, make sure there's no blind spots in the legislation and so on. And so right now, if, I, if you had to ask me, I'm saying, yeah, it's going to be, uh, you know, 9, 10 p.m. Eastern in a, if, if we're lucky. It could be a little longer. The Senate is on tap to be at work tomorrow to presumably pass or give their third reading the one, two, three readings to the legislation the House is scheduled to pass today. So we'll see. It's uh, stay tuned. I, I'm, we're live tweeting it all along, and you know where to get me on Twitter. David Aiken uh, will keep you up to speed, and I know you, you, the the, uh, the station will be reporting whatever news we got from here. All right, we'll keep a close eye on it. David Aiken, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Okay, cheers. All right, David Aiken, uh, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, following uh, things very closely in the nation's capital, working as best he can from home, which is uh, what a lot of us are doing right now. So, uh, yeah, interesting developments in the nation's capital. It sounds like this is something that's probably going to carry on well into the evening. And and I think, look, I, everyone's got to be willing to compromise here, right? And, and I get the sense that there is. Uh, but the government's got to, to be careful with overreach here. Uh, and the opposition parties... It puts them in a tough spot because they don't want to be seen as standing in the way uh, of getting relief out the door. But at the same time, they, they do need to hold the government to account if, if they are proposing to go farther than, than they should or need to. So certainly there was some overreach on the part of the liberals. They, they appear to have recognized that, but how much are they going to back off and what are we going to have here? But at the same time, too, I think the opposition recognizes that under these circumstances, there may be a need to give the government a little more leeway in being able to respond quickly. So if a decision has to be made, whether on the, the financial side or the public health side, uh, that requires a quick response, the quicker the better. But we've got to be very careful about that. Look, there, there are a lot of aspects to, to covering this story, and a big part of it is, as much as it's public health crisis, there's with that the economic crisis, and, and that's manifesting itself in a lot of different ways both in terms of, you know, the short-term concerns of uh, individual Canadians just having what they need to get through this, but sort of longer questions, too, about, you know, the viability of certain industries, not only to survive this, but, but what things look like on the other end. Uh, so certainly for the uh, petroleum sector, there's some big, big challenges, colossal challenges in terms of getting through all of this, but not just the economic impact of this, this outbreak, but the pressure, the downward pressure on prices, that's been the result of this price war involving uh, the Saudis and the Russians. So it, it is a considerable challenge the industry is facing. What kind of steps can we take uh, to get through it? Uh, so today, the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary has released some interesting data uh, looking at the challenges facing the industry and some policy recommendations uh, to help the sector weather this tremendous storm. Uh, joining us to, to talk more about this study is the uh, co-author of the study. Uh, Richard Masson is a uh, fellow at the uh, School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Richard, good to talk to you here today. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. All right, we'll talk a bit more about what the data tells us just about the, the scope of, of this crisis, first of all. Well, one of the things that I wanted to get across in the paper was just, you know, how big a hit the industry had already taken. So if you go back to 2014, capital spending in the petroleum sector was about $8 billion a year. And the decline over the course of the following five years was huge. 
down to the range of kind of $30, $35 billion a year, so uh, almost a 60% decline. Capital spending by oil and gas producing companies is the revenue for service sector companies. So the drillers, the engineering firms, the fabricators. And so that huge drop in uh, economic activity really resulted in a lot of pressure on that whole service sector. Some of those companies were able to you know, move some of their business down to the U.S. where there was a lot of activity in Texas and other places, and the U.S. was growing its production. But what's happened in the last couple or three weeks is essentially with the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, and COVID-19, Canadian companies are cutting their budgets further. And so they've started um, cuts, cuts, cuts. Today, Suncor announced a billion and a half dollar cut to its capital budget, bringing the total amount so far to over $6 billion further reductions. And in the U.S., there's cuts happening as well. So there's no market there for companies to go looking at. So what I'm trying to get across, this is a real problem. Companies are already under a lot of pressure. And with all these cuts that are happening now, it just extends the pressure, and there's no real place for them to go find other work. Right, yeah, which you know puts it in a pretty stark term. So where, where do we even begin when it comes to, to how to address this? Well, part is to try and understand the big picture. And we know, you know Saudi Arabia and Russia are fighting about market share. And, uh, you know, Saudi is flooding the market with 2.5 million barrels of oil. Russia is adding another half million. That would have hurt. It would have been painful. But then... With uh, all the shutdowns of our economy around the world, we've lost about 8 million barrels a day of demand. So between the two things, that's 10 10 million barrels a day of lost activity, lost lost need for oil and gas. And it reduces um, overall production needs by about 10%. So at some point, the market will rebalance. The Russians and Saudis will recognize that they've forced some of the weaker producers out. Um, in the U.S., activities declining already very hard. Venezuela and Russia, or Venezuela and Iran, that were already under sanctions, are under pressure. So, so at some point, Saudi Arabia and Russia will stop fighting, and we can hope that we're going to get out of this COVID ID thing in the next few months. So, so we will see increased demand. At that point, we'll need our Canadian industry to still be viable. And the question is, how long will that be, and what can we do to kind of keep it going until then? Yeah, and I mean, obviously, it's hard to know what what kind of a timeline that is, but whatever it happens to be. So what what kind of steps can we take to to ensure really it's it's survival? Well, and my suggestion was to try and use some kind of flexible financing. You know, most companies already have a lot of debt on their balance sheets. I took a look at some service companies. Um, they have, you know, debt ratios that are 60, 60% of their capitalization is debt. They don't have room for a lot more debt. And, and as their revenue drops, it makes even the debt they have, uh, you know, tougher for banks to keep supporting. Nobody's issuing equity at these prices, and so it's very difficult to see that being a solution. So I was proposing, well, maybe a preferred share approach where, you know, a preferred share is, is treated as equity on a balance sheet. The dividends get paid when the company has enough cash flow to pay them, but they accumulate if they're not being paid. So it does provide a return to a government um, for being involved, but it provides flexibility for an unknown period of time when companies don't have cash flow. So just one more idea that governments can think about as they try and figure out how, how can they address this in a way that's timely, because it needs to be something companies can take into account right now before they make a bunch of big decisions. 
Now, is this something that, that we need the federal government to do? Is this something that the Alberta government can do? I mean, obviously, there, there's a need for, I think, the two levels to, to work together on this. But who needs to take the lead? Well, I think it's probably got to be a federal government need because this is a big uh, problem. It's a big industry, not just in Alberta, one, BC, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, all big players in, in this industry. And all their companies are also suffering. So, you know, it would be ideal to see, in my mind, the federal government taking the lead on some of this as part of their overall, let's address um, their COVID-19 problem. But Alberta supporting it as best they could. Uh, so it's something we're going to have to move quickly on here. I mean, uh, part of this is is to get these policies out there so policymakers can can judge for themselves maybe the, the the merits of some of these various proposals. But did you have any kind of sense as to to where we're at in in making these sorts of important decisions? Because you know, as you make a case in the paper, we we do need to act quickly. You know, I don't have a great sense. Of, you know, there's been talk that um, there's been discussions behind the scenes about a program, and it may come out in the near term. Uh, hard to hard to know until. They announce something, how far along the line they are. This is obviously very complex. There's lots of companies in different situations. Some still have revenue. Some some may not be able to survive because they're already over-levered. And uh, putting money into those situations may not be the best use of it. So I don't have a complete answer, but I know we have to move quickly. And, and you know, otherwise, companies are going to be forced to make these really tough decisions that are hard to get back out of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, more at uh, policyschool.ca. Richard, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Uh, That is Richard Masson. He's a fellow at the uh, School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, a co-author of this piece today. Uh, You know, trying to pull together some data to to get a sense of what's happening and, and then laying out some recommendations. Right. So you need to understand how severe the problem is, what kind of a response is needed. And, And it's going to have to be a pretty pretty significant response. They say Canada needs to very quickly implement a strategy to allow the majority of companies in the petroleum sector, which faces the dual challenges of the pandemic and the price war, so that they're ready to contribute to the economic recovery when conditions improve. Helping the sector stay solvent in the current crisis avoids adding to Alberta's already concerning backlog of orphaned wells, right? So that's something else we got to keep in mind. If more companies go under, that problem gets worse. Most of these companies have little ability to take on additional debt due to restrictions in their existing loan covenants, and it would be virtually impossible to issue new equity in the current market conditions. This speaks to the need for governments to become involved in providing more flexible financing. This could take the form of subordinated debt with payment structure to reflect a company's ability to pay, or perhaps uh, cumulative preferred shares. Uh, the latter option would be Canada's equity on a company's balance sheet could provide a predetermined dividend when the company has the ability to pay it back. That's the kind of thing we can put in place quickly and will provide a lot of flexibility in getting through this crisis. So some interesting ideas they put on the table. And as it goes back to the conversation we were just having earlier with David Aiken about the government needing to respond quickly. I mean, this speaks to that. But when it comes to testing, and we just we talked about this for the top of the hour, it's crucial in a situation like this to, to have as much data as possible. So we can really understand what's going on and whether we're making progress, whether the situation is getting worse. But when it comes to something like this, I mean, still, I think a lot of countries are, are doing limited testing. So we don't have a good handle on the number of cases out there. And different jurisdictions are doing their testing differently. So sometimes we got uh, different numbers uh, that tell different stories. Then we're trying to get sort of a big picture view. 
Um, but if we're going to judge the effectiveness of a certain approach and whether that approach needs to be tightened up, whether it needs to be loosened, we got to have good data uh, and monitoring things. Once we get out of the worst of this, to be able to keep an eye on the situation, that's going to require a lot of data. Uh, so we're going to spend some time in this hour sort of talking about that challenge of gathering and having good data, why it's so important. I want to begin that conversation uh, here this afternoon as we uh, welcome to the program uh, Caroline uh, Colleen is uh, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Evolution, Infection, and Public Health at Simon Fraser University. Uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, do we have you there, Caroline? Yes. Hi. How oh, are there you? we go. Uh, doing well. Appreciate you making some time for us. Hopefully, I, I got your last name uh, correct there, Colleen. Yeah, not too bad. Okay. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us here. Uh, first of all, talk a bit about you know from your own perspective why uh, data is is so crucial in in understanding what we're dealing with in a situation like this. Right. I think, of course, having good data is crucial. Uh, if we you know we can't fight fires blindfolded, as uh, we we've heard from other people today, um, different kinds of data can give us different kinds of information. So early analyses of you know, initial case reports, really looking at like how long it took between what we think was exposure and when we think symptoms developed, looking at the time between symptoms in one person and symptoms in the next person in a transmission chain, so someone that maybe they infected, uh, those give us key information about timing and how fast we might expect to see spread. Um, they also give us information about, you know, what might happen after we start seeing community transmission. Now, I know you're talking about testing and testing protocols. Um, I think we have to be judicious about testing. We don't want to go out and do testing broadly in the whole population, although for data, you know, it would be great if we could instantly get a complete population picture of exactly who's infected. Uh, but, of course, that takes a lot of testing. It takes a lot of lab supplies. Uh, right. So there's trade-offs that have to be made and who gets tested when and, and what kinds of information we can reach. I did. I think it was California was doing uh, some kind of random sampling where you, you just go out and, um, you know, you sort of randomly test, say, a thousand people or two thousand people in the general population. And maybe just to give you a snapshot of what, what you're dealing with at any given moment in time, is, is there value in, in taking that kind of approach if, if you have the resources? I think there can be value in taking that kind of approach. The problem is if you do it too early, then what you might find is, you know, 10 positive tests. Well, that's great, but then if you wait two weeks and the whole picture has changed, you don't actually get a lot of information, but you've used up a 1,000 tests. Um, the other problem is if it takes you two weeks to do that, it's hard to interpret the data because the prevalence will have changed in those two weeks. So I think it's not as it's not as easy as it sounds. Um, one thing people talk about is doing what's called sentinel surveillance, where they take maybe everyone in a particular subpopulation uh, that's of interest, maybe everyone in in a care facility or a collection of care facilities, or maybe everyone in you know presenting at hospital for any reason, um, and try to extrapolate from those. But it can be quite hard to get you know detailed minute by minute pictures of these infections just because it takes time to get data. It takes testing. Testing itself takes time um, and various other reasons. Right. And, and uh, you know, even using some of the more grim statistics of tracking this, whether it be hospitalizations or deaths, I mean, even some countries have different protocols when it comes to, you know, what, what counts as a coronavirus death. And as you say, I mean, whether it's hospitalization or, or even fatality, you still need to, to know that um, 
that, that, that there was uh, an infection. So you still need testing of those in hospitals. So uh, it's hospitalization data or the data stemming from, from the number of deaths. Is that a reliable metric for, for tracking this? Yeah, I think all of these things are pieces of the puzzle, and they all have different delays associated with them. Another thing I think it's really important to understand as we do our physical and social distancing that we've heard so much about is that it may take a couple of weeks between um, when we stop transmission and when we stop seeing, you know, if, even if we completely stopped transmission, which of course is, is unlikely, but if we did, those people who were infected seven days ago and are just getting symptoms now, what may turn up at hospital, get tested, it takes, you know, a little bit of time to process that test and get it into a case report that gets sent out. So it will take a little bit of time before we start to see that. Um, but I think, and there are different delays, right? If you use data from deaths, you know, it takes a little while. People don't die the instant they get infected. So there's a delay there. Hospitalization happens before that, so there's less of a delay, but it occurs for many reasons, um, some of which are, are COVID-19. So, I, you know, what we do when we do estimation and modeling is we put these pieces of the puzzle together and we try to use them together to get the best estimates that we can get. Uh, and what about when it comes to modeling then? I mean, to, to try to get projections of, of where we're going, what uh, things might look like in a week or two weeks or a month. Uh, and that obviously depends on a lot of things. I mean, what, what kind of modeling can, can be done at this point? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, the community has a large number of people doing mathematical modeling, and they use all kinds of different types of models from, you know, individual-based models that try to simulate people's households and schools and work and transit and all the, the stuff. Um, those are very rich models that need a lot of data that we often don't have about all of those different processes and who contacts whom and, and blah, blah, and all of those things to really simple models that look at the number of susceptible, exposed, infectious, recovered individuals and forecast those um, to, you know, different kinds of of models that are used, and they all try to pull in some of the same data sources. One of, and, but there are still some really key unknowns, right? So all of them, uh, if you want to make forecasts for tomorrow, you don't, you know, since we're doing our social distancing now and maybe last week, but not two or three weeks ago, if you want to make a forecast for tomorrow, you don't need to really model the detailed effects of social distancing or the strength of, of what we've already accomplished so far. If we want to make forecasts for three weeks' time, we need to understand how that distancing that we're doing is really playing a role. And we'll, I think we'll start to see signs of that in case counts, hopefully as early as the end of this week and into next week, um, and, in, and in what kinds of infection events we think we're seeing. Then if we want to make longer-term forecasts about you know, when this is going to peak and fall down, it starts getting important to look at how immunity is building up in the population. For that, what we really need is what's called serology data. Uh, where they try to measure the frequency of antibodies in the population. So that would get, give us a handle on whether there are people who are completely unknown to us now, asymptomatic, you know, didn't, didn't get sick, didn't show symptoms, but acquired immunity to this virus. If those people are building up in large numbers out there, um, then that will shift the peak earlier and will be lower. So different kinds of forecasts need different kinds of data. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and in terms of, of longer-term response and, and sort of managing uh, things once we come out of the worst of this, I mean, you know, it seems like we're going to need more testing and, and being able as well to test for antibodies, but also being able to, to trace 
you know, once someone's tested positive, who they might have come, come in contact with. And, you know, the extent to which they've already done that in places like South Korea, I, I don't know if we can get to that point. But in terms of, of managing things after the worst of it, I mean, is, is data going to be crucial in, in allowing us to do so? Well, I think contact tracing is a is a really key tool, and of course, it's easier to do contact tracing when you have fewer cases because yeah. uh, the effort required to remember, you know, go and find people and get them to tell you all the places they were in the last 14 days and all the people they might have contacted and contact those people and trace trace them down. I think public health authorities throughout Canada have done a tremendous job of of doing some of that. I know it was done very early on and very intensively in places like Singapore, and that probably did, uh, he, well, must have hugely helped in, in containment and in slowing the rate of growth. Uh, people have speculated about whether we could actually use apps to do that. Uh, there was a paper by colleagues of mine at Oxford, Christoph Fraser and his group, uh, and I know the uh, Globe science columnist mentioned it uh, this morning, too, on, on the news. Uh, whether we could use phones to automate some of that, you know, to send out a signal to everybody whose phone you were close to for a certain amount of time over the past two weeks, if people would mm -hmm. be able to do that. That's a level of invasiveness to our privacy that Canadians are, are not used to and would probably, I, I guess, not find palatable. On the other hand, we don't find um, staying in our houses all the time palatable either, particularly. So I think that'll be an interesting conversation to have about, you know, whether we can... Or, or whether we would want to move to semi-automated forms of contact tracing, what the regulation would have to look like, um, and what those would have to look like. Contact tracing when you have many, many thousands and thousands of cases is just going to be very, very difficult to do manually, yeah. and even maybe with apps it would be very challenging. Yeah, indeed. Well, we'll leave it there. Caroline, uh, appreciate your insight on all of this, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. All the best to you. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Carolyn uh, Collin, uh, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics, Revolution, Infection, and Public Health at Simon Fraser University, and some thoughts on why data is so crucial in this, and also why it's so crucial to do what you can to limit the number of cases. So as I talked about earlier in the hour, there, there's a lot of data uh, to process and understanding what's going on with this outbreak. And, and it's crucial that we have good data so we can understand what's happening. If we could understand the effects uh, of certain measures, is this working? Do we need to do more? Are we in a situation where we can do less? Uh, so there are different ways of tracking that uh, in terms of number of confirmed cases, daily increases in new cases, hospitalizations, even tracking deaths. Uh, all of the, the data points in New York point to a, a very concerning situation uh, that New York is, is going to be uh, on par with, with Italy and uh, Wuhan and, and hard hit areas. And, and it's certainly concerning. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Washington State, that, that appeared early on maybe to be on that trajectory, there, there's been at least some encouraging trends uh, out of Washington State where they've done a lot of testing. Uh, but look, both the number of cases and the number of deaths continue to increase, but it's not exponential. It's not alarming increases, I guess, if you can put it that way. Uh, the number of new confirmed cases in Washington state jumped by 225. And the latest numbers, the jump before that was 203. The jump before that was 269. So again, it still represents an increase in cases, but it's not as though those daily increases are, are doubling. But, th but that speaks to the need to... to uh, understand the math, I guess, behind all of this. So joining us to talk a bit more uh, about that question 
Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Brenda Fine, who teaches uh, math and statistics at the British Columbia Institute of Technology. Had a really interesting piece uh, for the National Post uh, the other day on all of this, which stemmed from a pretty long Twitter thread uh, she had on her homepage. Uh, Brenda, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Um, in, in terms then of, of understanding, uh, you know, the, the math behind this and, and the value of good data, um, you know, we're, we're not all statisticians, we're not all epidemiologists, right, right. but we're, we're all trying to make sense of what's going on every single day. Of course, yes. And so what, what are the things that, that are, are perhaps most relevant, uh, at least in, in your view? Well, um, let's just go back to when uh, the World Health Organization declared coronavirus a pandemic. So this was a few weeks ago, and at the time there were approximately 100 confirmed cases in Canada. And the inclination is to just look at that number and say, well, 100 is not really a very large number. Um, you often hear there are more people of the flu, more people die in car accidents, all of that. And if that's all you're looking at, then, yeah, it's really not much of a big deal. But what we need to look at is how fast is that number increasing from day to day and what path are we on? Right. And I mean, I, I mentioned uh, earlier, there was some, you know, you look at the overall situation in the U.S. and, and you, if you go right. every five days, uh, you know, it's it's scary, the rate of increase uh, in the oh, number terrifying. of new cases, listening, right? Yeah. But when it comes to, to the numbers in Canada, uh, yeah. and, and certainly we're still seeing an increase here, but what, what do you make of the difference between the rate of increase in the U.S. and, and what we're observing in Canada? Well, um, right now, the U.S. is on the worst path of any country, and it is even on a worse path than Italy, which is absolutely terrifying because Italy is often held up as an example of absolute catastrophe. Canada is not quite as bad. Uh, that said, this is not a reason to become complacent about Canada. So um, when, uh, you know, a few weeks ago when we just had 100 cases, um, that was two weeks ago, two weeks later, we have 2,500 cases. And just to put that in perspective in terms of Italy, that's the number of cases that Italy had on March 3rd. And at the current rate in Canada, we're on track to be where Italy is um, today in two weeks. So we can think of ourselves as about two weeks behind Italy. Right. And, and you know, the, the other thing, too, is, is, well, how do we know what impact... Uh, that are uh, all of the measures we, we've implemented. What kind of impact are they going to have? Because it, it takes time to measure the, the impact, the results of that, doesn't it? Right, right. So that was the subject of my piece, that um, for a while we're going to see, first of all, we're going to have more cases um, every day. And something that's probably a little bit more frightening is that for the next little while, each day we're actually going to have more cases than we had the day before, um, which, you know, if you don't know exactly what's, what's normal, what's on track, what's below track, what's ahead of track, um, that could be very confusing and scary. So um, I like to just go back to uh, just, just the path that we're on, and this is what's known as exponential growth. And the key property of exponential growth is that the number of cases, the total number of cases is increasing by a constant rate every day. And in this case, it's not quite constant, but it's close enough that the model applies. And in Canada, we're seeing that every day we're getting approximately 24%, sorry, 25% more cases than we had the day before. So the total today is 25% more than the total yesterday. And we need to bring that down because that's absolutely out of control. And of course, the ideal percent growth is zero. We want to increase zero percent day to day. We want to have the same number of total cases yesterday as today. 
because that would mean we have no new cases today. And although that's our end goal, that's obviously not going to happen right away. So the first step is we want to bring that number down. So if we have a 25% increase between yesterday and today, and then we have just a 22% increase just to make up a number from today to tomorrow, then we're moving in the right direction. So, so to compare those day-to-day numbers and, and almost basically then to take what today's number and kind of divide it by yesterday's number? Uh, well, we're taking the number of new cases today and we're dividing yeah, the number by of the, new cases. Yeah, and yeah. we're dividing by the total number of cases we had up to the end of yesterday. Which gives us an indication of how quickly this, this is rising. So we could still have right. trends where the total number is increasing, but it's that, yes. that rate of increase that is so important. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and so once we can see then where even the number of cases is going down, that, that ratio or is going up, that, that ratio, if that's the right way to describe it, yes. is, is going down, that would indicate we're, we're on a positive trajectory. That's correct. Yeah. So that's what we want to look at at the beginning. So at the beginning, we want to get mm-hmm. that rate down. So at the beginning, we might still have more new cases from one day to the next. But as long as that percent increase is going down, that's a really good sign. Now, in the long term, we're going to want the, ac- the absolute numbers, the actual number of new cases to go down, uh, down day to day. But that's going to take a while to get to that stage. They're going to go up for a bit um, before those go down. I guess the other challenge, too, and I mean, you know, for to take Alberta as an example, up until this point, you know, we've had uh, a protocol in place that they were comparing apples to apples when we look at, uh, at each day along the way. Alberta's going to change its testing protocol a little bit, which from a public health right. perspective does make sense, but then it does, it, it does skew how numbers are being reported. So what, what are the challenges and when it comes to looking at how each province is doing their testing, how much testing they're doing, and, and what story the numbers are telling us? Right. So that's actually something that Quebec did the other day. So there was an enormous jump in the number of cases in Quebec. I think it went from some 200 and something to 600 and something in one day. And the reason was because Quebec just started counting presumptive cases as well as confirmed cases. And of course, our, our math is only as good as our data. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of challenges here. We have a lag in tests. We don't have the right number of tests. Not everyone is getting tested. We're having changes in criteria from one day to the next. And the way that that's going to affect our calculation is that every time there's a change in how it's done, we're going to see a little blip in the data. So we saw that one really sharp increase in Quebec over that one day. And um, if we didn't know where that came from, we would say, whoa, all of a sudden, way more people have coronavirus today than yesterday. And of course, that's not it. It's just that way more people are being counted. So we'll see that blip in the data and then the numbers will settle. So what we're really looking at here isn't just individual ratios, new cases over existing cases from day to day. What we're looking at is trends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to get that 25% increase down from day to day. But if one day we see that it's at 28%, we shouldn't necessarily be alarmed right away. And by the same token, if one day it's at 22%, we shouldn't get complacent. So we want to look at the pattern. Some important points. People can read your piece. It's up at uh, nationalpost.com. Brenda, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Take care. Uh, That is Brenda Fine, teaches uh, math and statistics at the uh, British Columbia Institute of Technology. Had a good piece, uh, as mentioned, up at the nationalpost.com. Just on, you know, the the math behind all of this and what we want to be watching for, that even if the total number of cases goes up each day, what do the underlying numbers tell us about that pattern, about that trajectory, and how much are they going up? And is the, the daily increase in new cases today, how does it compare to yesterday? 
because first of all, it's about slowing the rate of increase before you get to a point where then the total number of new cases each day starts to drop off. Uh, and eventually you get to a declining number of total new cases. And at the end of it all, and then where they appear to have, have got in, in Wuhan, is where you start to go days with no new cases. We talked earlier about uh, everything going on in Ottawa today. What was supposed to be a vote on this uh, economic rescue package kind of turned into something else. Uh, the NDP, by the way, people wondering where the NDP are at, uh, they appear to have taken the same position as the Conservatives, that, look, we're here to vote on this economic package. We're prepared to uh, approve it. Let's vote on that. Get it done with. If the Liberals want to talk about other emergency powers, well, we can have that conversation and try to figure something out. So we'll, we'll get a clear understanding, I think, sometime uh, later this afternoon or this evening on, on where things stand in the nation's capital and, and what's going to be voted on at some point. But obviously, I mean, you know, given the, the, the challenges that our political leaders are dealing with it at the moment, it's a less than ideal time to be having a leadership race, which, of course, is what the conservatives are right in the middle of in terms of the challenges of campaigning and fundraising and, and doing all of that and the logistics of, of being able to have the vote at some point. There is increasing pressure on the party to put a halt to all of this, uh, to call it off, maybe do it again at some point. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, uh, one of the front runners, of course, has uh, joined uh, some of the other candidates in saying, yes, look, we, we can't be doing this right now. we got to call this off. Uh, on the other hand, though, Peter McKay, perceived to be the front runner, uh, has suggested a different strategy, saying uh, rather than call it off, let's speed it up. Let's get this over with as quickly as possible. So it's become a bit of a, I don't know if mess is fair to say, but it's an awkward situation, I think, for the party to be in. I mean, Andrew Scheer did resign. There's a reason why this leadership race is happening. But um, is, is this the time to be doing it? Anyway, joining us uh, for some thoughts on kind of the dilemma facing the party and where this all goes from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Tim Powers, uh, conservative political strategist. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good, good to be here. Give me a break from self-isolation. Uh, so I, I, I welcome that to talk yeah, about something that'll be normal when, uh, <laughs> when it is normal again. Yeah, no kidding. So what's your sense of kind of where the party's at? There's, there's obviously increasing pressure now on, on the party to, to make some kind of a decision. What, what are you hearing? Two schools of thought, right? And you, you alluded to them. One says, let's delay it um, because uh, the crisis should come before it and people's time and should be focused on that and that uh, politics as usual isn't at play, although some of that may be uh, thrown out the window, that particular myth with the politics this afternoon in the House of Commons. Yeah. Uh, the other school is just get the new leader elected now uh, and, and move forward. That's one of the arguments Peter McKay is making. You know, the example that I can give you that is contemporary, and you know I'm from the East, so I'll use a good Eastern example, is the one with the Newfoundland and Labrador Liberals. Uh, Premier Ball, the Premier, had announced he was stepping down a few weeks ago. They had called a leadership race. Uh, that leadership race was electing the next Premier. You would argue that's significantly important right now, given the world in which we find ourselves. Uh, yesterday, they decided to put a hold on their leadership race, which was supposed to be concluding the first weekend in May. 
and suspended until such time as they are passed. Um, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and Canada's passed the current set of circumstances. I think that should be fairly instructive for the Conservatives. Look, uh, I know uh, there's a sentiment. I've certainly been uh, one who's been forward to see uh, Mr. Shear step out, but things have changed dramatically in the last two weeks. Uh, I think the Conservatives are not going to be harmed by delaying uh, the election of a leader until sometime in the fall when uh, this crisis is, uh, is, is past us, or at least we're in a better place with it. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, it's not as though Andrew Shear has checked out or anything. I mean, quite the opposite, no. obviously. I mean, he, he did make the decision to resign. That was, you know, under much different circumstances. Uh, so he's certainly been, I, I think, uh, up to the task in terms of staying on top of the situation, uh, working with the government, also holding the government to account. I mean, I think more or less Andrew Shear's done, done a pretty responsible job as opposition leader, which sort of takes away, I think, the, the urgency to do this, doesn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, I think he has. I think that's fair. Look, I, I think uh, conservative MPs and Democratic MPs, black MPs even, are trying to do a good job. I think, look, everybody is focused on doing what's right for the country first. Uh, red and white, as somebody said, comes before blue, green and orange and just the stripe of red right now. And then I think most MPs are affording themselves pretty well in all of this. So I don't know if the need there is a need to rush it. They also put themselves in an odd position to... Uh, if they continue with the leadership race right now, because you'll remember that three of the, the candidates, Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, and uh, Marilyn Gladue, have all said, well, as soon as I get elected in the fall, I'm going to want to go for an election. You think that still holds right now? I, I don't see how it can. Um, you know, and, and under these circumstances, look, and I mean, you know, for the, the leadership contenders to stand out, you got to stake out certain positions. You know, you, you need to be addressing all kinds of, of different issues. You, you need to, to sort of take a firm line that we're going to stand up to the liberals. I mean, all, all the stuff that you would typically, you know, talk about during a leadership race, it, it all just seems so out of place right now. We're all kind of myopically focused on, on one pressing issue here, both the economic and the public health side of it. All of this other stuff seems so irrelevant at the moment. I, I don't understand how, you know, there, there's a leadership race that can really function in, in that atmosphere. Well, and that's, that, that's the bigger brand challenge, right? And this is what was happening to the Newfoundland and Labrador Liberals. They were getting called out for being tone deaf. Oh, you just want to change the leader. Well, guess what? Um, you have an experienced premier there. You may not like him, but he's been there. So why are you rushing? Now, when the world is as different as it is, I don't know if it's true or not yet to say that this may be one of the most defining moments of our lifetime. But if 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 it is indeed that, and it seems to be that many people, at least right now, feel it is that way, why would you, if you're the Conservative Party and you eventually want to return to power, why why would you get in the way of that moment? Why would you not be part and parcel of, of the solution and not look like you're tone deaf and interested in your own political future? Because there's a real big branding downside to forging on with all of this right now. Do you think the pressure's on the party? Do you think there's more pressure on, on Peter McKay at this point? I mean, if Peter McKay joins the chorus and says, look, let's put this on hold... I mean, that would obviously be a big, big factor. So do you think he needs to move or does, does the party need to move? Well, I mean, Peter's voice uh, would certainly uh, add 
significant pressure to, to all of this, or somebody like Stephen Harper, for example, a former leader, or Ronna Ambrose, people in your neck of the woods saying, hey, and, and maybe that's what uh, what Peter may be hoping happens, so that, because uh, there are people in the party who do want the leadership race to continue, do believe that, you know, you need a permanent leader or a more permanent leader in there now, but uh, look, if Peter McKay said the leadership race should be delayed, I think it will, the leadership election organizing committee, wonderful acronym, LEOC, would be hard-pressed to to move forward uh, on all of this right now. Though there may be some conservatives who will say, look, look what happened today. That's why we need to get a new leader in there, and we need to make sure that... Uh, uh, that that leader and, and his team or her team holds the, the Liberals to account. Well, the MPs are doing a good enough job on all of that. I think we all have to think big and park partisan politics for a few months to get past all of this. Yeah, there, there's the other factor, too. I mean, obviously, the prime minister couldn't be in the House today, so it's not crucial that, that leaders be in the House. But, I mean, Aaron O'Toole is an MP. Peter McKay is not. Um, if, if, you know, we crown a new leader, the party crowns a new leader at some point here, how relevant is that, do you think? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, McKay's proposition would be, look, uh, and probably O'Toole, so he has called, as you rightly point out, for the delaying leadership. I've been in cabinet, uh, in Peter McKay's case, he was in cabinet 2008-2009. I have the experience. You're better off putting me in now. I don't need to be in Parliament, um, as you alluded to a moment ago. Uh, you know, Justin Trudeau is not there today because he's self-isolating because mm-hmm. of his wife's COVID-19 uh, test and then positive definition of all of that. So, uh, but it's the stewardship, whether you're physically in the, in the House or not. And I think, you know, McKay may be saying, look, uh, party, speed this up and just get me in there at the preordained decision to do so. Um, so wh- why why waste betrays in some way? Now, Peter hasn't said that, but I, I think it, it betrays the uh, understanding of many in the Conservative Party have and want for a proper process, particularly many of the Conservative Party members who are listening to your show today who like process, who respect process, and want to see uh, a race where there's a lot of debate and dialogue and don't want a global pandemic to be used as an excuse to short-circuit that debate, they're probably more likely to accept a delay than they are an acceleration of the race. Well, we'll see what happens in the days and weeks ahead here, Tim. Thanks for your input on this. Appreciate making some time for us. Take care and stay well out there. You as well, Tim. Thanks again. Tim Powers, uh, conservative strategist. Uh, He's also a vice chairman at Soma Strategies, managing director with Abacus Data. Uh, so his thoughts, look, I mean, it's it's a tough spot for the party. Obviously, this whole race began well before this pandemic, and it was prompted by the resignation of the leader. Um, so what do you do at this point? It's just, it, it seems so tough in this, is, you know, the idea of asking people for donations. I mean, how can you do that right now? And, you know, the the other things that you would have in a leadership race, debates and that sort of thing. Uh, or even, you know, let's, here's my, my position on a whole bunch of different policies. Well, 99% of that stuff doesn't matter right now. So if you postpone things, you just put it off, have it next year. And, and maybe those kinds of things will all seem reasonable and relevant again. There's, there's no urgency to it, right? It's not as though uh, Andrew Shear is no longer able to do the job. He's still there. He's obviously shown a willingness to step up and take on that responsibility and be the opposition leader stick with that for now and you can come back to all of this that seems reasonable
But I guess, you know, it's, it's ultimately the party's decision. Certainly in the U.S., we got a much different decision uh, because an election is supposed to be this year. The Democrats need to have a presidential candidate. You've still got this process unfolding. At least it's to the point, I think, where Joe Biden more or less has it wrapped up. But same kind of thing. Can you really have people having rallies, asking for donations, doing debates, all of those things in, in the midst of all of this? It's, yeah, it's a tough spot. Anyway. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.